0: Finrod had a similar battle with uh, Sauron and lost. And it ultimately cost him his life. And so for Galadriel to sort of be like, hey, you killed my brother, prepared to die. I I really like that standoff between the two of them. I wish it wasn't dark Galadriel looking like the woman from The Ring, but. (laughs) You have no
1: power. Servant of mortal
0: god. god oh, sure.
2: You are nameless. Faceless.
1: Ah. Ah. Go back to the war.
2: Welcome back to GC8. I'm Eric. I'm Rosie. I'm Johanna. And this week we are again joined by David Keim. And we are talking about the third in the trilogy of films that comprise The Hobbit, the prelude to The Lord of the Rings. Did it really need a trilogy? I'm not sure, but we'll talk about that. First, David, what's your media landscape been like recently? other than this Tolkien stuff?
0: So recently, my wife and I have been, every Saturday night, watching through series of movies. So, for instance, doing all the Die Hard movies, all the Mission Impossible movies. Not too long ago, did all the Hobbit Lord of the Rings movies. And uh, right now, uh, we had to pause last night so I could watch The Hobbit, but uh, we're in the middle of all the Karate Kid movies, all the, all the uh, classic Karate Kid movies, not uh, Jaden Smith. So we're looking forward to Karate Kid 3. Uh, I'm also rereading for the gazillionth time, The Naked Sun* by Isaac Asimov, which is one of his robot mystery novels. And I'm reading that because the planet they go to, nobody ever actually is in person with anybody, even husbands and wives are very rarely in person. And so they're all basically living by Zoom. So I thought that would be uh, interesting to reread during this time period. So,
2: okay, I need you to weigh in on a debate I've had with my significant other about Asimov. First of all, she has a very broad claim that there aren't a lot of good female characters in classic science fiction to begin with, which I find strange because we've got McKillop, Norton, McCaffrey, uh, Le Guin, uh, Bujold, like CJ Sherry. I can name so many female science fiction writers from the classic era, you know, Mercedes Lackey, the list goes on and on. But She, like most people, when they think of the classic era of science fiction, thinks Heinlein, Clark, Asimov and maintains that none of them have any good female characters. And I'm like, well, wait a minute. What about the robot psychologist? Um, What's her name? Uh, Help me out.
0: I I don't know the name. I, I know what you're talking about. But
2: anyway, and she's like, well, that's not really a female character. She's a robot. I'm like she's human but she relates to robots more than she right. does humans and i'm like yeah she's a nerd in other words <laughs> <laughs> well
0: while reading naked sun there is two female characters that could be lead or you know co-stars and um uh i don't know that they live up to uh me too movement standards of uh, good female portrayals so or, or even 1970s standards of good female portrayals so
2: Susan Calvin was who I was thinking of, Doctor right. Calvin. Yeah, Doctor
0: Calvin. Right. Uh, so, um, I that, that's tough. That that's not my story to tell. But uh, I I did notice the female characters were particularly weak in the Naked Sun.
2: Okay. Anyway, let's. Uh, we got a lot to talk about, so let's jump into this movie here. But before we do, we need to talk about the year. Two thousand
1: fourteen was not. In my personal opinion, I don't think it was nearly as exciting on the uh, social media forefront. But there were some other great things that happened, okay? So marijuana was legalized on January 1. The very first cannabis store was open in Colorado. A polar vortex hit North America, causing all kinds of problems that winter to start the year off. And there was also a drought in California. We had the uh, Winter Olympics in Sochi. This was also the year the MH370 vanished, never to be found and all 239 people considered dead. That was the year of the Ebola outbreak. Apple bought the Beats headphones from Dr. Dre. This was also the year of the ALS Ice Bucket Challenge. In uh, Ferguson, the uh, 18-year-old Michael Brown was shot by a white police officer triggering a racist debate in the United States again. This was also the year we lost Robin Williams, one of my all-time favorite actors. So I had to mention that this was the year that we lost him and the world changed (laughs) because he was amazing. This was also the year that Bill Cosby fell from grace with his rape scandal. There was a Sony hack. They said that this was North Korea retaliating because of the movie, The Interview that's why they were hacked. U.S. and Cuba were back on the mend. um, And then uh, the year ended when Eric Garner was killed by a white police officer from a chokehold for selling illegal cigarettes. And that the hashtag I can't breathe was trending.
2: So the day that we're recording this, there's another one of these stories in the media. It like hit this morning. Some of you guys might have known that Rosie and I were punk rockers, and it was normal for us to come into conflict with the police on a fairly regular basis. And it is terrifying in the U.S. to come into conflict with a police officer. And some people who live in other parts of the world might not be as familiar with this phenomenon. So and I promise you this connects to today's episode— In my late teen years, my father, who was also an academic, decided to or was asked to speak at Oxford in England, and uh, he took me along. I so wanted to go to England. I had never been to England. And so we landed in Heathrow and spent a couple of days in London. And I was stoked about this because I wanted Doc Martin boots, which you couldn't get in the United States at that time. And I knew that the only place I could get cherry red Doc Martins was at Shelley's Shoes in London. So I went and I bought them and I loved these uh, Doc Martins and I started wearing them immediately. I hate being the guy that looks like a tourist. So even though, like, I became a punk because I was tired of getting beaten on as a nerd, and said, "Okay, I'm just gonna act out the part," you know. But I hate lo- standing out in a crowd as a tourist. So I didn't know what to pack for London. So I packed a London fog coat. You know, never yeah. mind that those are made <laughs> in the U.S.
1: That's appropriate.
2: <laughs> I got this black trench coat. I'll I'll wear that. So. So we're in Oxford and I'm wearing my black trench coat and my cherry red Doc Martens. Okay. And Oxford's a college town. And those who live in a college town or know about college towns, like everything closes. Johanna can back me up on this. Everything closes at like 8 PM on weeknights, right? It's not like living in a real city, you know? So I go from London, which is alive 24 seven to Oxford. And I, was still a big nerd, right? So I knew that the Inklings met at this bar called The Eagle. The Eagle and Child. The Eagle and Child. And so I wanted to see it. Of course, it was closed being a weeknight. And so it's like getting dark and I'm walking down the street. I find it. And I'm like peering in the windows of this place. When I hear, wee, I hear this like tweet sound, like, and I look and and it's like, a Bobby blowing a whistle, you know, <laughs> like <they'll>, Rosie's <laughs> automatically laughing because we're used to cops rolling up on us in cruisers and they'll slam you up against the car and and frisk you and start asking you questions. If you're white, if you're black, you end up face down on the pavement. Forget about it. But, right. but so this guy's coming at a brisk waddle toward me and he looks every bit in my mind like I picture a Keystone cop. Like, you know, they have these domed helmets that they wear and he's got like the brass buttons, you know, the, the coat with the brass buttons and the little billy club that he's swinging around and he's coming toward me. And I got to realize that in his mind, he's looking at me and I don't look like someone. I'm a foreigner. I don't look like someone from Oxford. I look like one of those. I'm wearing Doc Martens, a long black trench coat. I look what, like one of those. Um, troublemakers from London, you know, one of those, the rabble, you know, peering in windows. Right. So (laughs) yeah, my first reaction is run because that's what we would do when the cops came for us in, in Clifton. It's like run, they can't catch us all duck down an alley, you know, but then it occurs to me, there's only two ways this can go. It's not going to be like the first way, which my mind automatically, uh, imagines like yakety sax playing and like this, this, like, <laughs> this like Benny Hill scenario where he's waddling at, after me, uh, you know, at two times speed, you know, in black and white. <laughs> but I don't know this town. I don't know where to d- duck into corners and alleyways more than likely. Is gonna end with him beating on me with this billy club. So, so instead, I have to like I didn't have my passport on me. I I, ha- I showed him my American driver's license. It was all very British and very proper. And like he established that I could be there and that uh, I should watch myself because you know if I'm peering in windows in a long coat, you know it's going to raise eyebrows. <laughs> and and so then he went his way and I went my. Never have I ever had an interaction with the cops like that in the U.S. Ever. No, no,
1: no. They wouldn't do that here.
2: Anyway, long sidebar, it kind of relates to Tolkien, so I threw it in there. <laughs> <laughs>
1: I just also wanted to mention real quick that that was also another good year for movies because we had Godzilla, we had uh, Guardians of the Galaxy, Captain America, The Winter Soldier, Interstellar, Gone Girl, John Wick. That was the first John Wick movie that came out that year. And X-Men, Days of Future Past. That was a fun movie. And Divergent came out that year. And I'll just keep it at that. There were plenty of other movies that came out that year, but... Um, that that was also a, a good fun year for movies.
3: Yeah, and the nominees that year, again, the nominees in 2014 were all excellent films. Kate Blanchett, who we're going to talk about soon, was nominated for Best Actress for Blue Jasmine in at the 2014 Oscars. It was also a great year for... Matthew McConaughey, um, the McConaughey started this, this year. All right, with Dallas all right, Beyer. all right. I'm here for <laughs> Dallas hey. Club. Yep.
1: And, um...
2: do you, see? Do you see what I have to deal with every week? <laughs> this is why I was like, I'm getting a guy on here
1: he's like i need to build the testosterone <laughs> the the lack of testosterone on this show hey, hey I'm,
0: I'm all about crying matthew mcconaughey and in interstellar so that's my <laughs> jam
3: and um 12 years a slave i think one best picture this year other notable titles american hustle gravity which was a huge hit also you know a technological wonder No, no, not all of us are fans. I'm starting to get a sense that this was maybe the beginning of the end of the Oscars recognizing great cinema. 2014 seems to be another another decent year.
1: I don't know, man. I, I don't have a lot of respect for the Oscars sometimes because sometimes I feel like they overlook really good films for the sake of being politically correct and go ahead and crucify me i am not a conservative okay i'm just saying i've noticed that that, ha- that has happened over the years and i think that that's a shame oh yeah no you're totally right like green okay, book was a you. disaster because
3: no, like yeah. every everyone agrees that a, a lot of nominations now have the sheen of promoting diversity and inclusion, but they've missed the mark like 85% of the time. And this is why looking at the nominees from, you know, the the 2000 the early 2010s I mean, I'm sure there are a lot of great indie flicks that they overlooked, but there are a lot of great indie flicks that actually made it onto this list, like Philomena was nominated for Best Picture, that cute little movie with uh, Judy Dench, and Nebraska, the Alexander Payne comedy with Bruce Dern that's shot in stunning black and white and is just like this incredibly low-key, hilarious comedy, that made it onto the Best Picture nominee list, and... We just haven't seen anything like that uh, up until this year, when the only films that came out in 2020 were independent films, so... But more on that and on. we got other things to talk about. I want to talk about set design. They took over you know, a good part of New Zealand for the landscape porn we've discussed earlier, but they also built sets through all eight acres of Stone Street Studios on the Miramar Peninsula in New Zealand, as well as six sound stages the production was absolutely massive. They were helped by Tolkien illustrators John Howe and Alan Lee, who spent their entire careers developing a deeply researched, very intricate rendering of Tolkien's universe on book covers, in special illustration plates that appeared in the later editions of the books in the 80s. And they took these thousands of illustrations and handed them over to art director Dan Henna, who helped realize them as physical sets. One of the phrases that came up in interviews when they were talking about these illustrations was this idea of adaptations of adaptations, and that a lot of the work they're doing is taking Tolkien's Middle-earth realm, which is in some ways an adaptation of medieval culture and real history and real artifacts. And then they have to adapt Tolkien's adaptation of medieval life into a recognizable, cohesive world. We're gonna talk about some examples, but first I wanted to read a really great quote from John Howe about this approach. Bestowing a level of integrity on any fantasy world means accepting aspects of it that you may never explore, constructing an alternative art history, creating artifacts and costume styles, accepting inconsistencies and blank spots, finding the best way to make it appear as a realistic universe. Something of a contradiction, perhaps, but the necessarily empirical approach involved weaves these inconsistencies into the fabric of the place. And so I think as we're thinking about is Middle Earth medieval Europe, is it its own thing, What are the areas that don't fit with our concept of medieval life? What are some of the areas where in some areas of Middle Earth, it works one way and in some ways it's another that trying to blend these inconsistencies into a world that feels inconsistent the way the real world does. It can't all be perfect. It can't all be uniform. It can't all make sense. Otherwise it won't feel lived in. So with that idea one particular set piece, the castle of Dol Guldur as a broken down medieval castle where some evil shit has gone down <laughs> in the past and is still lurking everywhere. And how they managed to make it feel like it belongs in history, it belongs in in myth, but then also belongs in this Middle Earth, I think is extremely well done and that the set pieces do fit with the world of the illustrations that Hao and Lee created.
0: It would later go on to be restored yet again before Lord of the Rings, but it is a place where uh, Sauron or his minions uh, keep getting attracted to as a base of operations. And so I liked its depiction of being, yes, kind of deconstructed, but still usable. Um, and, and one thing to keep in mind is that Tolkien saw all of his third age st- stories, The Hobbit and The Lord of the Rings, as the end of the time of magical beasts in the world. So we are seeing whether, whether it's gonna become the age of man or the age of orc, it, you know, that's the suspense, but we are the, it is the ending of the age of elves. It's the ending of the age of magic. It's the ending of the age of uh, fairy uh, in, in Middle-earth. So uh, you're, you're starting to see those older uh, civilizations start to crumble. I, I will throw out the geekiest comment that will probably be, ma- be made today. There are a couple scraps of Tolkien writing that implies that perhaps the Middle-earth stories take place in Europe pre-Ice Age and then they get erased by the Ice Age. So uh, that, that I can't say that Tolkien definitively believed that, but there are hints of that idea in a couple different places in Tolkien's writing.
2: In my headcanon, that's when it happens. We've talked about headcanon before because uh Robert Howard with Conan also implies that the Hyborian Age, like predated our Stone Age, even though it totally represents our Bronze Age, and Tolkien totally looks like our Iron Age, and you know, but let's just say in my headcanon, all of this stuff happens in pre-Paleolithic times.
3: It's so interesting, David, the way you phrased that as Tolkien believed this is when this happens. And your interpretation of Tolkien's relationship to his universe is very similar to Peter Jackson's, where Jackson imagines Tolkien as the narrator of a history that he has witnessed or has been passed down to him or or a world that that he has been told about and then is repeating back to us rather than someone who is creating the world. And this gives Jackson some license to point the camera somewhere else, say like the world exists independently of Tolkien. Tolkien's just, you know, showing us what he wants us to see. And so we can create new characters. We can bring in different elements of this story into this narrative framework just by pointing the camera somewhere else.
0: I've said before of the hobbit's movie specifically that yeah the hobbit by bilbo baggins is bilbo baggins view of the hobbit but maybe peter jackson in the, in the time in between has found archaeology other documents other evidence to fill in the stuff that bilbo didn't witness so
2: and didn't christopher tolkien also sort of do that like where he would he he expanded upon stuff based on scraps of notes of jrr's
0: He um, was very hesitant to actually write or fill in anything, but he would edit together things or publish with essays explaining where they came from, uh, a variety of things of Tolkien's writings. That's what Tolkien's son's entire career was, was publishing scraps and, and drafts of Tolkien's writings. One thing that's interesting about Tolkien writing is that, yes, he actually writes in that the story, he has inherited the stories and is just translating them. So there's a fiction about how those stories come about. But then what he does is as he's writing, he he drops in these little hints and pictures of a wider world just for color, just to give a more a real 3 dimensional color. And then he obsesses for the rest of his life of, what did I mean by that? That has now been published and I got to figure out what that means. And going back to one of the very first questions, he went to his grave not knowing exactly what orcs were. (laughs) uh, And he he went to his grave not knowing exactly who the blue wizards were and when they came and and things like that. So he would drop these things in and then he would obsess for the rest of his life trying to figure out what that means.
2: I think that there's also an epic story tradition of the author being the narrator, the Homer idea of, I think the the Iliad or the Odyssey starts with singing me muse. I know in the Mahabharata, which is the great Indian epic was supposedly told to the scribe by Ganesh, one of the gods, you know, and so that the people that wrote these down was, were just sort of the, the mouthpiece of or the person that told the story, but that it was given to them, this larger epic. Tolkien supposedly was asked at one point why he didn't write a sequel to The Lord of the Rings and said something to the effect that he actually tried and that it was the age of men and it was too depressing.
3: (laughs) That's good. That's very good.
0: It's just out of reach, but Christopher Tolkien published his draft of that sequel to *Lord of the Rings*, and I have it just out of reach here in, in my office here. But yes, yeah. Let's all go to the
2: lobby. Let's all go to the lobby. Let's all go to the lobby to get ourselves a treat. Elevens is, which we are going to have now, is. One of the lighter meals in the Hobbit day. So I chose a recipe from another cookbook this time Recipes from the World of Tolkien Inspired by the Legends by Robert Toosley Anderson. But this recipe is pretty much exactly the same as what I used to make when I was an employee of a small cafe. This was one of the most popular things we offered on our food menu. In the cookbook here, it's called Bjorn's Warm Baked Cheese. You get 300 grams, basically a wheel, a whole wheel of baby brie or camembert, one or the other. You want to buy the kind that come in the little wood boxes. They come in a little round wood box. That's important. You also need three tablespoons of honey, 25 grams of pecans, a handful of dried cranberries, and a sprig or two of thyme. first thing you do is you remove anything covering the cheese. It's usually wrapped in either wax paper, foil, or plastic. Take that off, and you put the cheese back into the little round wood box, okay? And then place that box itself on a baking sheet it might leak because you're then going to drizzle all that honey on top of the cheese. Then you bake it in a preheated oven, 200 degrees centigrade. This recipe mentions gas mark six, which I don't know what that means, but I guess gas mark six is uh, an oven setting. Anyway, you bake it for 15 minutes. Then while that's baking, you get... I have a little tiny iron skillet that I do this in, but you basically... Take a small frying pan, and for three to five minutes, you toast the pecans. Then you take the cheese from the oven, cut a small cross in the center of the top, and scatter the pecans, cranberries, and the thyme sprig on top, and you serve it with a crusty bread. Something that, that I think we can all believe Bjorn would eat probably in one bite, but still.
3: <laughs> I was going to say for Bjorn, that's how t- it sounds like a single serving snack. Um, I think if it were me, I'd want to share it with a friend. That's a lot of cheese for one person.
2: <laughs> I sometimes have it with sliced apples mm. and, and dip apples in it instead of a uh, crusty bread, but do what you like. Baked brie with honey. Mm, fantastic. Okay. Time to jump into it. Now that you have your snack, Let's talk about the dragon.
3: What smog represents and and what he's doing in this story really becomes clear more in the third chapter. Not just because of the destruction he he inevitably rains that we've been promised throughout the story, but also because the themes around greed and the power of money to corrupt people in the story, namely Thorin. And the dragon imagery continues throughout this third chapter. I have only really one nitpick about the portrayal of Smaug, which is the line that he pronounces as he's flapping towards Lake Town, ready to absolutely crush them. And he says, I am fire, I am death. It strikes as one of these over-the-top moments at the end of the second film, but Damn if he's not fire and not death at the beginning of the third one. And and I I'm curious to hear your feelings about this transition, like how the second film ends, how the third film begins. Does Peter Jackson pull it off?
2: Let's have uh, David answer that.
0: You know, I, I'm going to admit that usually second movies in a trilogy are not the best. I I think that's fairly universal because it's just trying to get from point A to point C. But I like Desolation of Smog best of the Three Hobbit movies and um Battle of Five Armies at least is at least the fifth best of the Three Hobbit movies. So <laughs> Uh, but I, I love the ending of Desolation of Smog. I, I think it's a perfect cliffhanger ending. And to jump right back into it uh, in, in the third movie uh, where, where he does rain down fire and death. Uh, I, I, th- that's one of the best parts of this ad- adaptation, I feel, personally.
2: Yeah, that is definitely a great bit. This is where my memory is starting to fail me. I used to be on point with all this stuff. But I, over the years, had started to conflate Dale and Laketown. I always remember, you know, particularly from the uh, Rankin-Bass stuff, uh, but also from reading the book, you know, the men of Dale looked up with faces pale beneath the light, beneath the moon, you know, and I'm thinking it's the men of Dale that are looking up and seeing the dragon come, not the men of Lake Town. But smog really does rain down death and fire from the sky in a World War Firestorm type thing and this to me is now the new way that dragons are portrayed game of thrones was already on the air but hadn't gotten to the dragon stuff yet and they totally took the way that dragons attack straight from this because there's a lot of different ways you can do it you know you can be trogdor burninating the land but smog really is this giant flamethrower and you know, his chest glows before he rains down fire. And after having seen Game of Thrones and then going back and watching this, I swear to God, every time Smog was about ready to let loose, I had to go, Drakaris!
1: <laughs> I like the beginning of Five Armies a lot better than I liked the beginning of the Smog. Just simply because it picked up where it left off, it was less confusing for someone who was watching the Hobbit series for the first time like me. Kudos to them for that, for not confusing me like you did at the beginning of the last movie. Thank you for that, because it took me about a third of the movie last time to figure out that this was a side plot to let us know what was really going on. Getting back to uh, Five Armies, loved it. Love the dragon. And, and, you know, one thing I wanted to mention from the Desolation of Smog movie that I didn't get to mention last time was I loved it when he came out of the gold. And we thought this was it. He was going to die. And we were done with him. And then he flew out of the gold and headed towards lake town. And I thought that scene was phenomenal.
0: I did not like the scene of them starting the forges and pouring the gold and all that kind of stuff. It seems like they were just setting up a video game of Lego the Hobbit uh, to have all sorts <laughs> of little cap <laughs> adventures there. Um, I could but see that. <laughs> how that ends with Smog getting covered in gold and flying out and then like twisting the gold off of himself Uh, Because in the book, he is referred to as Smog the Golden, and the movie doesn't really show that so I really like this kind of new interpretation of Smog the Golden in that scene right at the end of that movie.
3: I went to graduate school at Lehigh University in Bethlehem, Pennsylvania, and one of the most striking things about Bethlehem PA is the old steel stacks that are still sitting there rusting and falling apart. And in the last few years, they've tried to make it a tourist destination. They turned it into a casino and it's all lit up like Disney World every night. They've got these blue and purple up lights to, to make it seem like this attractive, attractive destination. And while I was living there, I had this feeling like I was living with a dragon in the city. This sense of this like huge hulking beast that was occupying an area where it used to produce treasure and was a huge symbol of capitalism and greed. And ultimately this beast had just kind of nestled there. And people were continuing to feel the deleterious effect of not being able to breathe. I mean, like all of this dragon symbolism was just like really intense in Bethlehem. And then to turn the steel stacks into a casino was just like, just one more over the edge. But like, I, I love how how intensely Tolkien has rendered this like dragon mythology of of the dragon being attracted to wealth and hoarding it and that Smog like you know buries himself in the pile of gold like like it's a down comforter. It's I mean just it's it's so well done. And then this imagery of him being covered in gold and spinning it off to go destroy something and and do sort of the opposite of hoarding wealth but to like not only does he want to have all the gold himself but he wants to destroy what everyone else has
2: since we're talking about smog the golden and this interpretation of it i got another animal color that that's my little one of my little nitpicks from this film and this may be a headcanon thing so i have to consult with David and see if he has the same impression. But at one time we see Gandalf racing to get there at a full gallop on his horse. His horse is like multicolor and I've always had stuck in my head that Shadowfax was supposed to be pure white. Now is this a mistake? Is this pre-Shadowfax? What's the deal here?
0: So Shadowfax A It's pre-Shadowfax. In fact, in this movie, you hear him asking Radagast, hey, I'm going to need that horse. That horse is not Shadowfax. But Shadowfax in the book is described as a very beautiful silvery light gray. Shadowfax in the books is not white. In the movie is white to match Gandalf the White. Uh, in uh, Spoiler alert for Lord of the Rings. Um, but uh, uh, so this is not Shadowfax. And in fact, the movie depiction of Shadowfax, while I think it's a fair adaptation uh, for the visual, uh, is is incorrect. And Shadowfax is in fact gray. And it's shadow.
2: Yeah. Uh, well, uh, even before I had seen this film, I had always... Envisioned Shadowfax as being white for some reason, but uh, even before I saw the Lord of the Rings films. Anyway, weird little animal color thing. I wanted to get out there while because I was reminded of it by Smog the Golden.
3: Speaking of weird little animals, can we talk about Alfred and the people of Lake Town and the dynamics there? I mean, oh my talk gosh. about <laughs> the most weaselly weasel little character. <laughs>
1: yeah he's the weasley of the weasley
2: that's for sure he out worm tongues worm tongue right oh
3: yeah he's just a worst
0: (laughs) i get why he's added to the film especially in the extended edition of battle of the five armies Uh, i I just wish there was less of him in the film to be honest with you
3: oh no i agree and especially because i feel like he adds this overkill element to the themes of greed that it really doesn't need to be there. Like, I like that the master and Alfred represent, you know, it's not just dwarves, it's not just dragons, it's everybody. Everybody is victim to this greed problem. But in the third movie, it it like gets to the point of like, now you're hitting us over the head with this. Like, it's the stuff we get with Thorin and the themes around greed and how he's changed by it is already pretty strong and pretty didactic. And Alfred just makes it like... Okay, God.
2: Like we get it. <laughs> I, I I gotta agree because Tolkien is all I mean, this is one of the central themes of Tolkien's works, and and he's pretty heavy-handed about it already. The idea that that greed, the lust for money and power, is the greatest evil in the world. Um, and gold. You shouldn't value it over everything else. In fact, one of the most famous Tolkien quote that everyone knows is his inversion of Shakespeare's all that glitters is gold to not all that glitters is gold. And like this character, this added character that's just so greedy because we already had the greedy town baron uh, guy.
3: The master played by Stephen Fry. Yeah. Great little character bit there for Stephen Fry. Yeah.
2: (laughs) Yeah. So we already had that in there to add yet another greedy character that tries to make off with the treasure, Uh, you know, but, you know, that is the central theme to this book and to these movies. So
0: So this is, I guess, my uh, tangent, purely trivia, Bard's children, the two daughters are actually real life sisters and the real life daughters of, I believe his name is James Nesbitt, who played one of the dwarves. And his son, some of your listeners might recognize as, as young Ian from Outlander. Uh, so there's an Outlander connection, not, not just through Dwalin, who also goes on to be an Outlander, but uh, Bard's son is young Ian from Outlander.
2: Uh, does Peter Jackson have a daughter that's in this film um, in Laketown?
1: I thought I had read that Yeah. Um, when I was reading through the notes that his daughter actually made an appearance and he even made an appearance in the film, but you wouldn't have known it was him. We,
2: we saw him at the very beginning in Brie in the last film. And then okay. we see him at the very end of this film, but we'll get to that. But his daughter, <laughs> she was kind of upset apparently because you barely see her in the house and she's doing dishes and they made her actually do the dishes, like so she was really doing the dishes. So, so really, she wasn't in the film so much as she was cleaning dishes.
1: <laughs> like, okay, you can be in the film, but you have to do dishes in the film. Dang it!
0: <laughs> well, I think she played two or three different roles in Lord of the Rings, so you know they don't want her getting greedy with these roles. So,
3: yeah, each time it'll be a different chore. <laughs>
1: Yeah, that's right. In the next film, you're sweeping floors. After yeah. that, you're doing everybody's laundry. Just adding layers to
3: complete the realness of the world. You know, if you don't have people doing chores in the background, then what you're left with is a traditional English country manor house story like Downton Abbey, you know, where the the labor is totally erased from the narrative. At least in Lord of the Rings, people are working.
2: Right. I have a different theory, which is that all that, those dishes needed to be reset when they did other scenes. And, you know, New Zealand's only so big. There's only such a big labor pool and they probably ran out of set PAs. So they're just like, ah, have her wash the dishes in this scene. <laughs>
3: <laughs> Does that wrap up Lake Town or should we talk about its distraction now?
2: Well, we never did mention Stephen Colbert, who also makes a cameo in Lake Town in the last film and in this film.
3: Yes, with an awesome eye patch.
0: (laughs) Well, this goes back to Desolation of Smog, but it jumps in right after this is Tariel's healing of Kili in Lake Town. The first time I saw this movie, that kind of bugged me because there's no way she should be portrayed in the same way as Arwen was portrayed, even though this is a clear Arwen callback from Lord of the Rings between watching the movie the first time and the second time I watched that scene in Lord of the Rings. And actually there are clear differences in how they're portraying Tariel. She's not emanating light and she's not taking on a fairy appearance like Arwen does in Lord of the Rings. She she is herself, her middle earth self and she's reflecting light, lights coming around her. She's not actually the source of light like Arwen was. So I, I thought that was a good way to call back that Arwen scene but also respect the source material and Tariel would not have that same power that Arwen did.
2: So I already have the nitpick about the head cheerleader dating the nerd. But on top of that, not only did they create this character for this, but, you know... She's kind of the Mary Sue here.
0: Although I would throw out the, the healing scene is more in keeping with Tolkien's writing about the strong uh, women elves and in, in his, his writings, whereas maybe the battle stuff is not so much uh, what she should be doing according to Tolkien, so...
3: I think also some of it is just a visual component. There's something wonderful about watching the elves battle the way the elves do with, you know, a lot of archery and very dancer-like movements, which is in such contrast to watching the dwarves fight. And I think that if we didn't have Legolas and Tariel in the mix in these battle scenes and like have personality, people we care about and could, could follow, I think the fight scenes would get much more boring much more quickly because there's just a limit to what the dwarves are able to do, both because of them being dwarves and their style of fighting, but also, you know, their particular size and weaponry. There's just limits to what you can do in choreographing those fight scenes, whereas it seems like with the elves, the possibilities are endless. And and maybe even to a point of being ridiculous when it comes to Legolas, uh, any... <laughs> We we might get to there later, but that's one of my nitpicks
1: about this
2: film. I think that's all of our nitpick, but we could get into that now. (laughs) I think it's time that we, I mean, this is the Battle of Five Armies. We could start talking about the fighting here. And I got to say that I'm not as opposed to it as some of the rest of you guys are. I really like a good battle. And this book is fundamentally different from The Lord of the Rings. It's much more lighthearted and they had fun with it. And I'm good with that. This is not the battle for the Pelennor Fields. This is... You know, the Battle of Five Armies, all right? It's a little over the top. And the dwarves on goats, whoever came up with that, that was genius. Because I don't remember dwarves (laughs) on goats in any previous incarnation of this. Some say rams, but they definitely say goats. Balin even says, my goat riding days are over. Which became, <laughs> apparently, that became a phrase that the crew would always say. Like, if someone, like, was done or was leaving, you know, instead of being wrapped, they would, they would be like, my goat riding days are over.
1: <laughs> <laughs>
2: but yeah, some of the, the battle stuff gets way over the top and... Peter Jackson just doesn't have someone to reel him in. And this is where he gets into Lucas prequel territory, where you have like things like Legolas jumping down, stabbing the troll, making it knock over the tower into a bridge, you know, and then he's running up falling stones, defying gravity, you know, that kind of stuff bugs me.
3: Yeah. And what's interesting is that they seem to swing back and forth between cartoonish video game style thing where you could just picture Legolas running up the falling stones forever. It would be like a whole level in Mario of trying to get across this bridge. (laughs) But then you have some really awesome fight scene moments like um, Thorin's confrontation with Azog on the ice, which could have had the same level of cartoonishness, but actually was executed beautifully, I thought.
2: Agreed. I disagree only For one part, and that is when he returns from beneath the ice and like somehow, like what's he pushing off of? Suddenly he like, like Superman flies back out from under the ice, back on top.
3: Oh, I thought he was using the knife stuck in Thorin's foot, like a handhold and like pulling himself up with his tremendous arms and his... Klingon weapon extension. The action figure of Azog has traded out his fork thing for a Klingon blade. But
2: I gotta go back and rewatch it, but my recollection was he was drifting under the ice, you know, and Doran's mm-hmm. looking down at him and he see he think you he think he's dead. And then this is pure Jason from Friday the thirteenth. He like Jumps out. I mean, it looks just like when Jason jumps out of the lake in one of the Friday the 13th films, and like, boom, he's back on the ice. He's not dead, and he's gonna fight again. Well, he doesn't have a
1: jetpack, and I hate (laughs) to say this or sound vulgar, but he is a vulgar character, so maybe he passed gas under the water and that kind of propelled him out.
2: (laughs) I'm 12.
0: Is, Is it too hard to imagine that he found some footing under on a rock underneath the water that allowed him to jump?
2: with that kind of uh okay all right i'll buy that i'll i'll accept that because there's because there's so many more worse examples of over-the-top shit in this but i gotta say (laughs) i gotta say this is warhammer man this is like this is what i wanted to see you know i wanted to see a good like when the orc the second orc army shows up we get the wereworms
1: Beetlejuice, Beetlejuice, Beetlejuice!
2: <laughs> <laughs> we talked about Beetlejuice. We talked about Dune. We talked about um, where else did we have a giant worm? The crate dragon, the crate dragon, and Mandalorian. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So, I listened to the second audio commentary track when the wereworms showed up to see how they would justify this, and Peter Jackson said, "This is a direct quote." Whenever you paint yourself into a corner, add giant worms.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Makes perfect sense.
2: That's King Kong
3: in a nutshell, if I've ever heard it.
0: (laughs) I'll I'll just point out that in the book, there is no army from Dol Gordor at that point. And if you follow along with the geography, there's no way they can show up where they need to show up. So yes, Peter Jackson has painted himself into a corner. He's got to somehow maneuver that army past the other armies and therefore wereworms. But yeah, I, I don't like them. Now, <laughs> we could say he, since uh, army from Dol Gordor attacked Dale and the Lonely Mountain during the uh, time frame of the Lord of the Rings, maybe he's adapting that too. But yeah, the, the army could not show up where they show up without somehow getting around the Elf and uh, Lake Town armies, and so wereworms.
2: The wereworms are their tunneling uh, mechanism so that they can show up without being seen until they arrive on the scene, and it's important that that happen because in this adaptation, they are the Fifth Army, and uh, there's a lot of debate about what the Five Armies are, but we know that the elves are one army the dwarves are another army the men are a, a third army and then these two orc armies are the fourth and the fifth
3: is the giant eagles the fifth army in in one version of accounting because like yay for the giant eagles coming back
2: some people say the wargs are an army some people say the eagles are an army
1: what about the iron foot though I know that they're cousins of the dwarves, but, I mean, they showed up on their own, didn't
2: they?
3: I think they count as the same dwarf army as Thorin's people, too.
2: Thorin's people aren't an army. There's, like, there's 13 of them. So, yeah, they're not an army. But the Okay. But my personal interpretation of the five armies is that the eagles are the five army, that the orcs are one army and the eagles are the fifth army, and this is why— Going back to the book, and I know that I'm not the first person who's ever suggested this, but this has always been my interpretation of this, is that it's a World War I metaphor. And possibly World War II, which was already going on a bit too. The dwarves, to me, represent the Brits. Stubborn, resolute, stiff upper lip, keep calm, carry on, that kind of stuff. The elves are like the romantic French Historically, there's bad blood between them and the doors, between the French and the Brits, but they're both going to be allies against that greater threat from the East, which is, of course, the Germans. The orcs are the Germans. They're the bad guys. They follow the Dark Lord. And the men, to me, represent the Russians. They just fight with whatever farm tools they have handy and they're forced to fight on the opposite front from the rest of the allied armies. They're like on the other side of the battlefield. And then the fifth army to me is the Eagles because the U.S., what better symbol of the U.S. is there than the Eagles? They're late to the fight every time, but they swoop (laughs) in and save the day. That is the U.S. in World War I and World War II. So that's my interpretation and that's why I choose to believe in my head Canon, that the fifth army is the eagles.
0: In the book, there's only one orc army. They come in two waves strategically, but it's only one army from Gundabad. So in counting your armies, you either have to count Thorin's 13 as an army, which I don't, or you count the eagles and Bjorn as a, a late coming fifth army.
3: So while we're talking about World War I, I think this is a great opportunity to talk about the Arkenstone and some of the themes around greed and that possibly as an interpretation or, or a critique of what brought everyone into World War I, a few power hungry leaders fighting over who gets control of what and inevitably bringing in all of these common folks like the the people at lake town who basically get firebombed and i think we should definitely talk about the arkenstone in this chapter
2: while i was watching the uh, desolation the smog i was like what's so special about the arkenstone yeah it's a big gem but Look at all the rest of the treasure there, you know? It's like, I get that it's symbolic of the power of the dwarves, that it was inset on the throne and all of that, but what inherent power does it have? I keep waiting to find out, okay, in this interpretation, is it one of the Silmarils? But in fact, we don't hear a whole lot about it having any particular special powers. It's just a gem. This whole thing reminds me of like when someone wins the lottery and then suddenly claimants come out of the woodwork actually modern day treasure hunting is the same way like you know a shipwreck is found off the coast of florida and suddenly kansas claims they have a right to the treasure you know <laughs> to <laughs> a portion of the treasure you know so i kind of see it that way i can see thorin's point like hey this is dwarven treasure you know but then the men are like yeah our our town got destroyed because you woke up that damn dragon but the way the elves describe their gems as being like pure starlight thandril says like, you know they're like pure starlight that is a description of Silmaril to me
0: so this is another example where he's taking Tolkien is taking ideas from his larger work and sprinkling them in his children's stories with no intent to ever have this story be part of the larger middle earth story definitely I think he has the Silmarils in mind when he's talking about and writing about the Arkenstone but uh, absolutely it's not supposed to be a Silmaril although Ironically, in an early part of his writing, he actually translates some some of his writing into Old English. So that he can then say, hey, look, I have the old English stories that I translated into English. Hilarious. Uh, and, and the word <laughs> for someril in the old English translation of the Silmarillion is Arkenstone. So there, there definitely is a connection there, but I definitely feel this is one of those instances where he's putting ideas in there with no original intent to actually uh, make them the same thing or have this story even exist in that universe I don't know that he ever got around to explaining the Arkenstone other than uh, as a symbol of that kingship as coming from the heart of the mountain. It literally was the heart of the kingdom. It's definitely described as Silmaril light, at least. Of course, the Silmarils were constructed, technologically constructed by uh, an elf, whereas this is natural. So that's kind of an interesting thing there. But this is an unanswerable question, I think
3: if we take eric's interpretation that the dwarves are meant to represent the english and the orcs are meant to represent the germans which makes sense to a degree but then you have this really interesting layering there's a lot of talk about like homeland and like who owns what and who is entitled to what that you mostly hear in reference to the German side of the story of, of World War history about like what lands belong to them and what they should be able to lay claim to. And so it's it's interesting seeing how the Arkenstone allows us to look at the quote-unquote British side of this story as possibly falling prey to a similar kind of mindset that draws them into war. This question of like how much of a threat was Germany, how much of it was a war where there was a little bit of senseless land grabbing on both sides and the British Empire was strong then. But then, you know, as a result of World War I, they ended up with a whole shit ton more territory in Africa and all over the place. Mm-hmm. So this theme of greed and history intersecting in a variety of ways in The Hobbit.
1: There were even stories um, from during the period of World War One and World War II where there were border towns that bordered, I believe, France and Germany, where there are people in those border towns that kept both flags under their beds because their town could be owned by the Germans or the French at any given moment. So they would keep both flags in their homes for whoever owned their town that day. That's, I think, the
3: kind of thing that Tolkien is critiquing, and especially at a moment at in 1937, where they are on the cusp of going to war again. And What's interesting to me is looking backwards, we can see The Hobbit maybe as a representation of World War I and Lord of the Rings as the representation of World War II, but this Battle of the Five Armies moment is maybe actually his prediction of what's coming, seeing that there are these battles from the past where territory was lost, people feel they have certain claims, and we are about to head into another terrible all-out five-army battle with World War II. And then when he goes on to expand and write the Lord of the Rings trilogy, we can kind of see, you know, see that play out more. You know, they're able to stop the battle here at the Battle of Five Armies, but that doesn't mean that the war isn't coming.
0: I'll point out that Tolkien hated when people tried to say Lord of the Rings was about World War II, and he denied it up and down and up and down and up and down. I think there are analogies to his experience as a soldier in World War I, you know, going and having this experience and coming back uh, to the English countryside change. Uh, so I'll just speak up for Tolkien there and say, uh, he was here, he would say, don't be putting World War II in Lord of the Rings.
3: <laughs> if all Lord of the Rings was, was an allegory about real history, it wouldn't have the kind of power that it has. The reason why the characters and the stories resonate is because it's grounded in deeper mythologies about human beings at war at all points of history and not just this particular chapter.
2: I got to quote my freshman English professor who said, the author of a work is the worst person to analyze or criticize the work. And so Tolkien can say that all he wants, but frankly, we know he thought in the Battle of the Somme and we know that World War II was going on at the time this was happening. And, you know, London was evacuated at times. You know, there's just like, there is no way this can't have an influence on the writing, whether it be conscious or not. Mm-hmm. I just say, and I'm sticking to my headcanon, I'm sticking to my interpretation that at least World War I is what we're seeing in the Battle of Five Armies through the lens of Tolkien's Middle Earth.
0: I would just say that occasionally Tolkien even disputed himself and said it's impossible not to see World War One in uh, the fall of Gondolin story or some of his other stories. But I would tend to make the argument that we should be looking more at World War I because most of the storyline and drafts of Lord of the Rings were actually written before World War II. That's just my two cents, but, but I, I definitely think you can't take World War One out of his experience and his writing.
2: I, the only reason that I stick World War Two in at all comes from the idea that an evil is coming back. Mm-hmm. The idea that we defeated this once before and now it's coming back, which is a big thing in The Lord of the Rings. Not The Hobbit so much, but yeah.
1: When people are going through World War One, I, I think that they knew that something worse was coming when World War One was over. Because, I mean... Just from my own very personal experience, my great-grandparents came over here during World War One. They were both nurses, and they met in northern Ohio. So they came over from World War One, not together, but they met here and raised my grandma and her three older sisters. They knew something was up. That's why they came over here. And so you can't help but wonder if the temperature at the time if people didn't see something worse coming later down the pike, even though World War One was over, so you can't help but wonder if Tolkien didn't know that too when he was writing the Hobbit,
3: yeah, and that even the terms of World War One, which were meant to like totally obliterate Germany and Germany had its hands tied economically, there was no way they were supposed to be able to come back in the same way like they, they were supposed to destroy the ring. You know, they were supposed, like it was supposed to have been absolute and they just didn't quite get there. And that kind of idea definitely resonates, but not just with this battle, but probably, you know, lots of points in history where enemies that were supposed to be gone, you know, like I'm, I'm sure if you looked at the Mongols, there's probably like a ton of this that resonates with the, the, like history of Mongol battles, you know, as well.
2: Okay. So before we get too far a field, I have to say <laughs>
3: sorry, I took us to Mongolia. That was my <laughs> fault.
2: <laughs> we gotta head back here, back to the Shire, and I gotta say that there and back again, which was the original title of this series, supposed to be, and then it was in fact the original title of the book, both for this movie and for the book, is a terrible title. <laughs> Because back again is like one minute of screen time, one chapter of The Hobbit is the back again part. Like, so you get 18 chapters of there and then one chapter of back again.
1: Yeah.
3: On the other hand, it's a children's story. And so knowing in advance that maybe they make it back again is very important for kids. (laughs)
1: Yeah, this is true.
2: There's a
3: lot of moments where they are not making it back. You know, like if the Eagles hadn't showed up, they're toast. And thank goodness they make it home.
2: Or Gandalf, the ultimate Deus Ex Machina, who like, oh, suddenly Gandalf's back to save us from trolls. You know, or suddenly Gandalf's back for this.
1: <laughs> Gandalf, there and back again. <laughs> Gandalf,
2: why didn't he just go by himself? <laughs> anyway.
1: How did he leave and come back so many times on foot? That's what I want to know. I mean, even using a horse, how did he get back so quickly and right on time?
0: Can I just say some of the geography in this movie? If you look at the Lord of the Rings maps and and the history, you know the stuff with Agmar and the tombs that don't exist in Rudar and burying the Witch King and all that kind of stuff from the previous movie. The, the geography is messed up. E- even when Thranduil tells Legolas to, you know, go seek Aragorn in the north, uh From where they're at, right at that moment, Aragorn is miles, 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 miles west. So, uh, uh Jackson needed to be looking at his Middle-earth maps while filming this film a little bit more or the screenwriters did.
3: Well, especially since anyone who who had a copy of Lord of the Rings as a kid knows that the maps were the best part. Right. I loved reading along and then being like, "Oh, where are we?" and looking at the map in the inside cover of the book. That was that was one of the best parts.
0: <laughs> he gets to you know back and forth over the Misty Mountains without any problem whereas when we see it in other instances, getting over the Misty Mountains is the most difficult part of the journey. Legolas and Torio go on their date up to Mount Gundabug for a day, I guess, uh, which would be impossible. So the geography in this movie is troublesome, to say the least.
3: <laughs> Speaking of geography, though, can we go back to the Shire for the ending? I found the ending of this film Actually, surprisingly emotionally powerful. This like hero returned from war, finding that his stuff has been ransacked. His families don't believe that he could possibly be alive. Like that hero returning from war and finding everything changed and and broken was really something.
2: Again, greed is still there. So the Sackville Bagginses are, are right there, ready to take everything. So even in Hobbiton, greed is still a thing it's still and and i think that that ties everything together here it's also here that we get peter jackson's cameo did anyone see it
1: i'm terrible i missed it
2: so he's really being a little devious here um this is uh probably something he got from hitchcock because i think hitchcock did this in one of his films too. But one of the things that was not looted from Bilbo's home was the picture of his parents, the Tooks. And they're actually portraits of Peter Jackson and Fran. Uh Peter and Fran. Oh, that's awesome. Yeah. Oh,
3: cool. that's really cool. I didn't I did not catch that, but that's a really nice detail.
2: Okay. I think that pretty much wraps it up for this week. Uh I wanna remind everybody to Like us and give us good review of, you know, give us a bunch of stars, as many stars as you can on whatever, whether it's Google Play or uh, Apple, iTunes, Apple Podcasts, or uh, wherever you get this podcast, because we were really trying to reach out and have people find us. You can email us at gc8podcast, that's letter G, letter C, number 8, podcast, all one word at gmail.com. Until next time, this is Eric. This is Rosie.
3: This is Johanna.
2: And I'm David. Signing off.
0: In this movie, um, they give Legolas's mom sort of the same story as the sons of Elrond's mom. Sort of, not exactly, but pretty close. And uh, uh, Thranduil telling uh, Legolas to go find Aragorn and hunt orcs with him. That's very much the story of the Sons of Elrond. So here we're we're sort of retconning the Lord of the Rings trilogy to explicitly state that...